folks. Dr. Tim Jordan back here with a new podcast. And Valentine's Day is just around the corner. So I thought today that I would offer you some ideas about love. And in particular about trying to understand your daughter's dating relationships. Why they fall in love, why they fall out of love. I'm going to touch on evolution. I'm going to touch on their brains. I'm going to touch on hormones and chemicals in their body. And a lot of this is going to be interesting, I hope, to you to try and understand what she is going through. But also, I think you will probably learn a lot about yourselves as well. I've sat with groups of girls, as I've told you, in lots of different uh, ways. I go to school sometimes and work with classrooms of girls. The uh, all-girl high school my daughter graduated from Oh, gosh, it's been 15 or 20 years, I guess. I used to go into the senior classes and and talk to uh, different ones about the topic of dating and relationships. I would explain what goes on for boys, and they loved it because nobody had ever sat them down to give them that kind of information. When it comes to evolution, the sex drive that all of us have evolved to get us out there looking for a whole range of partners. Romantic love evolved to enable us to focus our mating energy on just one individual at a time. An attachment to other people in that way evolved to get us to stick with this person at least long enough to raise a single child together. Because evolutionarily speaking, our brain wants us to pass on our genes and wants our species to keep going. And as this mating process begins, there's three main reactions about the obsessive thinking we have about that person. Craving for a union with them. You want the person to call you. You want them to write you. You want them to say, I love you. There's also intense motivation to win this person over. So I'm going to begin with this podcast talking about the stages of courtship. What happens when we first start to see somebody we think we might like and then the process by which we become connected? I'm then going to give you a lot of information about the brain chemistry of falling in love. The Anatomy of Love, which is the title of a book uh, by Helen Fisher, F-I-S-H-E-R, which I would recommend all of you reading, including perhaps your daughters. And also I've read lots and lots of articles research, etc., to, to give you this information today. There are several stages of courtship. It's interesting to note, and I'm, this first part, I'm going to talk a little bit about life partner courtships. When, when women are out and about, they're actually unconsciously looking for a male who is three and a half years older and four inches taller. That's universal. That's true all over the world. They want some uh, male who has good body symmetry. Our brains are scanning even their faces to look for symmetry because if they have good body symmetry, that's an indication of a strong immune system and that they're healthier. One piece of finding your long-term mate is also about timing. When timing is right, we tend to be attracted to people who are around us. People who are lonely, in transition, a new life stage, somebody looking for adventure, something new, were more vulnerable, or maybe the better word is more susceptible to finding someone at those times. 
We tend to be attracted to a mate who expands our interests and ideas and experiences and our self our self perception. Uh, we're attracted to people who reflect the values and interests of our childhood friends. And it's interesting that we end up finding our life partners by gravitating to mates of, of the same ethnic and socioeconomic background, similar levels of intelligence, education, looks, and who shares our values and, re- and reproductive goals. That's not true for everybody, but it's true for most of us. Now, who we're attracted to when we're 13 or 15 or 17 might be a little different than that. But the way we tend to be attracted and the way we find people is interesting. There are stages of courtship, which you can read about in Helen Fisher's book, The Anatomy of Love, which are are fascinating. People went into into bars and places where young people were gathering and watched them and, and observed how they tended to connect. And the first phase that they noticed was what they called an attention-getting phase, like trying to establish your territory. So men would walk into a bar with a swagger. They would preen and stretch and roll their shoulders back. They'd stand stand tall with with their chest out as if to communicate, I'm here, I'm important, and I'm harmless. I'm important but approachable. Women would walk into these places with more of a, what they called a coy look. They'd raise their shoulder, arch their back, toss their hair into like a, like a sweeping motion. They might lick their upper lip. And there's a characteristic walk with their arch back, chest out, swaying their hips and strutting. High heels, by the way, came into vogue in the 1500s. And that sort of accentuates that strut. And the woman's signal to the people around is... I am here. After that first attention-getting phase, there's what they call a recognition phase. And that starts when their eyes meet. And when their eyes meet, one of them acknowledges the other with a smile or maybe a slight body shift. And they slowly move into talking range. They look at each other for a few seconds. And it's interesting that if if their pupils dilate, that's a sign of extreme interest. If they don't, Probably not. And that gaze triggers some primitive parts of our brain that says, should I approach them or retreat? That gaze, that look at it in each other's eyes, often triggers a smile. Uh, an open smile signals a stronger interest. And then they then transition into the next stage, which is what they call grooming talk. Idle conversation. And they found all over the world, too, that when, when people are starting in that kind of talk, they tend to do it with a higher, softer, sing-songy tone. The best leads in the conversations are compliments, questions that require a response. And what they found in studies is that what you say to this potential partner is less important than how you say it. Because you tend to give away your intentions with your inflection and intonation. And the human voice reveals your background, your education, and your character that's either going to attract or repel this person. There was a a survey they did on Match.com of single people. What they found was they judged their potential mate by grammar, 83% of people do, by self-confidence, 78%, and by their teeth, 76%. And men and women with appealing voices tend to have more potential mates and sexual partners.
Once the talking is going on for a while, if they're connecting, the next phase they call touching. And the woman almost always touches first. And the touch may be just, you know, grazing against them, putting a hand on somebody's arm or touching their hand. Um, and if, if the man flinches or withdraws even a little bit, the pickup is over. If he gets touched in that way and he leans toward her, smiles or returns the gesture, the dance continues. And then that leads into what is fascinating, which is what they call body synchrony. And that's when they tend to swivel their shoulders and align with each other. They're facing each other. And then they begin to move in tandem. They kind of mirror each other more and more. Which is just like what happens when a mom or a dad is sitting in front of a baby and they get into that nice rhythmic back and forth communication where the baby smiles and the dad smiles and the dad smiles and the baby smiles and it goes back and forth. They're mirroring each other. And I mentioned in previous podcasts about mirroring with, with teenage girls and how emotions are contagious and feelings are contagious and cheating is contagious. But that body synchrony is really important. What it says is we're in sync. At every juncture in the ritual, each partner has to respond correctly or their potential courtship fails. One concern that I have is that people might be missing cues today because of technology. They're so used to having that phone open on the table, looking down, checking things, scrolling, mm, beeps, buzzes, and that that interrupts that process. That body synchrony is so critical. It's also interesting to note that women began two-thirds of the pickups in the study. And I think that's even more so today. Once Once the couple decides to leave together, the shift in leadership then occurs, right after they leave the bar or the party, whatever. And then the man is in charge of beginning the moves. If they're going to be doing something physical, it tends to be him who's supposed to make the moves. And girls tell me that. Girls in high school say that even though it's 2023 and, and they've been through all this change and we've got women's lib, etc., it's still the responsibility of the man to do the initiation, physically, sexually. The most frequent worldwide courtship ploy is still offering food in hopes of gaining sexual favors. Providing food to females shows their ability as a hunter, a provider, and a worthy partner. It's 2023. That's not true. But that wiring is still there and the behaviors still often follow that pattern. Infatuation may begin with a slight tilt of someone's head, a gaze, a gentle touch, uh, tender words, um, or whispered whispered words during during a dance. And once the infatuation starts, then the brain chemistry starts to come into play. The first part of that infatuation, people call the romantic phase, or they call it lust. And that's driven by the desire for sexual gratification. And the evolutionary basis for this stems from our need to reproduce, pass on our genes, make sure our species is going to survive. That lust phase uh, is is um, associated with testosterone in men and women. I've read studies that show that 
during women's cycles, their, their men, uh, menstrual cycles, that they tend to ovulate somewhere around 14 to 16 days uh, after their cycle starts. And right around 12 to 13 days, they, they get a spike in testosterone that occurs at the time when if they want to have a baby, that's when they should have sex. And that's why the testosterone spikes. It makes them more sexual and more aggressive. Um, and that once that phase happens, then it leads into an attraction phase, if it's working so far. So they go from the sort of, I see you and I'm attracted to you. There's this lust thing. And then it turns into attraction. And then some two different hormones then get released that, that start to have a huge effect. One of them is dopamine. And the other one is norepinephrine. Um, and dopamine activates a part of the brain called the VTA, the ventral tegmental area. Um, that's a part of the brain's reward system. And when dopamine gets secreted and it hits that part of the brain, that reward center, it generates some feelings of wanting, seeking, craving, uh, intense focus, motivation. That elevated dopamine causes people to have a feeling of euphoria. It's like a natural high. And it tells them, oh my God, I'm in love. And it doesn't cause people to feel happy and satisfied. It causes them to crave and want, just like it does with cocaine and alcohol and other addictions. Just like, just like we have a need sometimes for, to eat something because we're hungry or thirsty, we evolved, we evolved this uh, dopamine system to get us to focus on one mate and start the mating process. And then at this point, when you see or hear or think about your new, your new potential mate, it stimulates the primitive brain reward system, and that ignites passion and focus of romantic love and wanting, seeking, craving, and all that. Uh, it also sort of stimulates intense, obsessive thinking about that person. And when you're, when you're not with them, you feel like you're suffering. There's withdrawal symptoms it's because we become, quote-unquote, addicted to love. It's interesting, too, that when that dopamine is released, it also stimulates a part of the brain called the hippocampus, and that's where memories are stored. And it gets triggered a lot when we're falling in love, which is why a lot of times we can remember every detail of our early meetings. And during our sleep, it keeps pouring over and over these memories. So this heavy burst of dopamine is the reason you find your new romantic partner intoxicating. It's their looks, their scent, what they're wearing. Young lovers become hyper-focused on this new drug of choice, i.e. their new partner. They think obsessively about the other person. They have intrusive thinking. They often compulsively call them, want to call them all the time, write to them, text them, stay in touch. They're wanting and they have intense motivation to win over this person. Similar feelings we get when we're fixated on our drugs, if we're a drug addict. Impassioned lovers distort reality. They change their priorities. They can change their daily habits to accommodate this new person. Sometimes they experience personality changes. Sometimes they'll do inappropriate or risky things to impress this special person. 
Many of them are willing to, to sacrifice, even put up with abuse because they're wanting that feeling of euphoria that dopamine is giving to them. It's intoxicating. It's also interesting that when the reward system gets their shot of dopamine, it also triggers the release of stress hormones. So we don't just want the other person, we feel anxious about getting them. We need to get them. And we start to let let it feel like it's a matter of survival. If I don't get a chance to talk to them or be with them, you know, I, I can't survive. I'm sure you've seen some of that kind of behavior in your daughters when they're falling for someone. Sometimes they lose themselves. Sometimes they put up with crap when they shouldn't. There's another chemical called serotonin. That's a chemical that when it's in your body, it creates feelings of being calm and secure. When you're first in love in in those early weeks and months, serotonin lowers, which makes people feel anxious, more sad. It creates more obsessive thinking. Uh, There's this maddening preoccupation uh, with different thoughts about the other person. People with OCD have lower levels of serotonin. Makes sense. Once this this phase has been in in gear for a little while, then it moves into an attachment phase. Attachment mediates friendships, uh, the parent-infant bond, uh, social situations, and many other kinds of intimacies. And the main chemical involved here is oxytocin. Oxytocin is a neurotransmitter. It's involved in bonding. So when you pick up uh, your newborn baby, your body gets flooded with, with oxytocin because nature wants you to bond with this baby. Because, again, we want, to, want this baby to survive. We want to get close, and we want this baby to grow up and pass on our genes. So anytime you're cuddling with someone, or you're hugging someone, or having sex with someone, it releases oxytocin. And if you have an oxytocin boost, this, is, this causes us to feel more relaxed. It causes bonding. We become more fearless, more generous. We're more trusting. Uh, it creates more empathy and contentment. And it feels like a deep emotional connection with a person or maybe even a group. It feels like safety and security. And it helps reinforce the positive feelings we already have towards people that we're falling in love with. Oxytocin is a really important chemical. So in those early months of a relationship, in the honeymoon phase, oxytocin kind of teams up with dopamine to make room in your brain for connections to this new person. The other thing that's interesting is that when oxytocin is is, uh, in your brain, your trust circuits get triggered. And it creates a tendency to trust other people and believe everything they're telling you. Which is why it's also pretty true, that old saying, that love is blind. I read about a really interesting study from Switzerland where there was an investment uh, conference. And they they gave about half of these investors a nasal spray with oxytocin. What they found was those people who had that nasal spray of oxytocin offered up twice as much money as the placebo group because they trusted them more. During social interactions, oxytocin will amplify the signals that we focus on in, this, in the social exchange. 
Our brain's attachment system needs repeated daily activation through oxytocin, stimulated by touch, closeness, all those things. And it's interesting that males tend to need to be touched two or three times more frequently than women to maintain their same level of oxytocin, or their brain starts to feel starved. Uh, When people have sex, men's oxytocin level goes up but diminishes much quicker than women's. It can be minutes to hours later when the men's level goes down. Women's levels can stay high for even up to a few days later. Oxytocin deficiency, when it goes down, goes away. It can feel like social isolation. And that's important in evolutionary terms because prior to the last couple thousand years or so, being isolated from your tribe meant almost certain death. So oxytocin wants us to bond, wants us to be together, because in our brains, closeness, togetherness, bonding means survival. It's also interesting that we're we're engaged in romantic love. Our neural machinery responsible for making good decisions and critical assessments of other people, our rational behavior, self-awareness, that includes parts of the prefrontal cortex, those shut down. Another way that love is blind. So we're not thinking straight. Studies of people in love showed slower activity, I'm sorry, lower activity in their prefrontal cortex when they thought about their loved one. And this suspension of reason makes, makes coupling and hence procreation more likely. Our brains is saying, our evolutionary brain is saying, connect with this person, mate with this person. And so forget about these negative things that you otherwise would have noticed. Don't look at those. Be blind to those. So when, you're, when your daughter is acting irrationally with their romantic relationship, and you ask the question, what were you thinking? The simple answer is, I wasn't thinking. My brain shut down. My prefrontal cortex, my executive center in my brain started to shut down because love is blind. So during this honeymoon phase, we tend to not see our partner's faults. Um, The cautious sort of critical thinking pathways in our brain shut down, which makes us tend to want to focus exclusively on one person. It helps with the bonding. And it ends at some point because we couldn't care for our children if we only focused on our males, our mate, excuse me. It's also interesting that if there's ever a threat of breaking up, it heightens our love brain circuits. And we, we desperately seek our loved one because if we experience withdrawal symptoms, it's incredibly painful. Our brain's been hardwired to avoid that because, because bonding, connection meant survival. So the withdrawal symptoms are intense. When a rejected person feels like it might be over, It decreases their dopamine. They're more lethargic. Uh, Depression can come in. Obsessive thinking. Depression, people feel like evolved to give rejected lovers time to rest and plan their future. Because mildly depressed people make clear assessments of themselves and other people versus the love is blind kind of thing. Love Love struck lovers express all four kinds, all four of the basic traits of addiction. Craving, tolerance, withdrawal, relapse. 
if the love partner breaks off the relationship, they experience signs of drug withdrawal, protests, crying spells, lethargy, anxiety, insomnia, or hypersomnia, loss of appetite, or binge eating, irritability, loneliness. I bet some of you have seen those symptoms in your daughters when they thought that their partner was breaking up with them or when their partner broke up with them because the oxytocin goes away, the dopamine goes away, and it's just like when you take someone's heroin away. They go through all those symptoms of withdrawal. In some of the articles and books I read too, they describe that there are different kinds of ways that people um, connect in that romantic way. They describe some people as being romance junkies, meaning they just love the feeling of being in love. So they'll go from one partner to, to another. And when it becomes a little bit too routine, they leave and move on to another one because they want that fix. They want that euphoria. They talk about attachment junkies who are so fixated on maintaining a relationship that they'll go through a lot of abuse when they should have left. I see a lot of girls who get stuck in that, putting up with all kinds of stuff from, from their boyfriends. And I, I run a, a support group for high school girls every two weeks. I have for years. And when they tell stories about the way they've been treated, the whole group's like, get out of there, run. But they go back because of all the withdrawal symptoms and because they've become codependent. That codependent means they just can't leave the relationship. They keep trying to understand the relationship. They want to keep it together. They put up with stuff. They lie for their partners. And part of it also is because when you get rejected, if you break up, not only do you lose that person, but you also lose, evolutionarily speaking, your chance of reproduction. You lose your daily patterns. They're broken. You lose friends because you might lose all of his friends. Sometimes a girl will only have friends because of his group. You lose things. You lose the things you used to do together. Your daily life is powerfully disrupted. And what gets triggered within us unconsciously is being alone equals death. So if your daughter is in a relationship or starting a relationship or, or leaving a relationship and you're noticing some of these symptoms I've just described, be understanding. Sometimes they can't make sense of it because the other parts of their brain are hyper-focused, the dopamine, the reward system, and their prefrontal cortex and their places of reasoning and rationality are, are more shut down. Maybe listen to this podcast with your daughter. Help her become aware of why she acts and feels the way she does as far as her dating romantic partners. When I talk about this stuff with girls in my camps and my retreats, when I go to schools, they love it. They love it. They love it because no one's ever helped them understand their intense feelings and the drives within them. And they always say, oh my God, this makes so much sense. It gives them some pause. It gives them some comfort. Talking about this too will activate her prefrontal cortex to help her move out of her feeling part of her brain and the reward part of her brain to help her reason more, help her reason through decisions about her relationship. You don't want to make these decisions strictly based on emotions because emotions cloud their judgment, love is blind, all that stuff we've been talking about. 
I oftentimes have girls do some journaling about their relationship. What's working, what's not, how they're feeling, what they want, what they're not getting. And when they, when they get into that writing, they're again into their prefrontal cortex and they're out of the emotional centers and they think more clearly just by writing. When relationships end, I always encourage girls to journal. What did I learn? What are the gifts from, from the relationship? If they're far enough away from the relationship, what are the gifts that I received? And doing some forgiveness so they can move on emotionally from their last partner. There's so much that goes into our love relationships. Some of it is our old brain wiring from prehistoric times. Some of it is the chemicals, the hormones uh, that shoot through our bodies when we fall in love and when we fall out of love. So I think anything you can do to help your daughters understand themselves is, is a huge gift you can give to them. I'll put a link to the book that I read and some of the articles that were helpful for me for, for learning to understand what goes on with love and romance and dating. Let me end this podcast with what I think is a really sweet story. Because if you look at movies and TV shows and things, they always tend to focus, or almost always tend to focus on young love. But I want to talk a little bit and tell a story about old love. People ask the question sometimes, is there anything more beautiful in life than a boy and a girl clasping clean, smooth hands and pure hearts hearts in the path of marriage? Can there be anything more beautiful than young love? And the answer is, yes, there is a more beautiful thing. It's the sight of an old man and an old woman finishing their journey together on that path. Their hands are gnarled but still clasped. Their faces are seamed but they're still radiant. Their hearts are physically bowed and tired, but they're still strong with love and devotion for one another. Yes, there is a more beautiful thing than young love, and that is old love. I hope you have some love in your life, people who love you. I hope you can enjoy your Valentine's Day with that person or people. Uh, thanks so much for stopping by to hear these podcasts. Check out my website at www.drtimjordan.com for more information about my books and my conferences and my camps and all those things that I do. And listen to this podcast with your daughter so you can open up some more conversations about romance and love and their brains and the chemicals in their body and why they feel and act the way they do. I'll see you back here in a little bit.